Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade. Hi everyone, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Busy day, busy week. As we get closer and closer to the first debate, six months from the first uh, caucus, and we also are following breaking news, and that is it looks like a U.S. soldier uh, somehow inadvertently crossed into North Korea, uh, touring through the DMZ line, the demilitarized zone, got into the wrong area, and seems to be in their custody. We're trying to find out the latest. We'll stay on top of it. But in the meantime, uh, Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonel Alan West will be with us. We'll talk about what's happening on the right and so much more. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. John Kerry is actually the Chinese Communist Party's favorite person. It's a bit like believing Bernie Madoff was an ethical business partner. And the CCP exploits his naivety. And John Kerry and many others in the Biden administration fail to see what's obvious, which is that the CCP itself, not climate change, is the greatest threat we face. That is Mike Gallagher, head of the Select Committee on China. To carry calamity in China, he has met with a regime that can't be trusted and builds a new coal plant. They build a new coal plant today while telling John Kerry they're all for clean energy. The same nation that's rewriting their Bible in their image while hacking our emails and threatening our neighbors. Number two. I've never been in any race I've ever spoiled. I've been in races to win. And if I get in a race, I'm going to win. Right. Uh, probably not for the Senate with... Uh, the governor running, Jim Justice, but maybe for the president, third-party play. Some credible names and impressive dollars are supporting what could be a formidable third-party presidential bid. Is anyone interested in voting for Manchin, Huntsman, or someone like them? As the front-runner Donald Trump has key court dates today to see if he can delay his documents in Florida. Number one. The Secret Service tipped off the Biden, as, as well as the Biden transition team. Why would the Biden transition team need to know that the whistleblowers were about to interview Hunter Biden? So I think this is good stuff, and it adds credibility to our whistleblowers. A corroboration and cooperation. As an FBI agent is reportedly about to confirm the whistleblower's account of what was the entire Hunter Biden investigation, a big sham and a limit. Going after Joe, that was a no-go. Keep in mind, Devin Archer testifies next week. Longtime Hunter Biden and maybe Biden family business partner. And that's where we'll begin. And that's really uh, disturbing if you're a Biden people because the, the sharks are circling. And the things that they have done, if they've done nothing wrong, it's really no problem. Let alone Cocaine Gate, which they never got to the bottom of, seems to be another substantial cover-up. But right now, it looks as though, if you look at what's happening with the Hunter Biden investigation... Uh, it looks like a cover-up. A Republicans say a former FBI agent has confirmed key details of the previous testimony that Gary Shapley gave, alleging political interference in the Hunter Biden case, including that both the Secret Service headquarters and the Biden transition team were tipped off about the planned Hunter Biden interview interview for with investigators to find out what he was doing overseas, to find out what he was doing with that gun, to find out why he chose not to pay taxes few things, and maybe how it relates to his father. 
the former FBI agent who served as the supervisor of the federal investigation into Hunter at the IRS confirmed key portions of the whistleblower's testimony. The whistleblower Gary Shapley said the second anonymous whistleblower leveling the accusation of DOJ interference in the investigation appeared before the panel on Monday. And that's what brought James Comey, not James Comey, James Comer and Jim Jordan out to talk about it. Here's Comer last night with Laura Ingram's Cut 12. This confirmed uh, key components of what the IRS whistleblowers told the Ways and Means Committee in a transcribed interview. And this is good because many Democrats and many in the liberal media have tried to discredit the whistleblowers prior to the committee hearing that we're going to have on Wednesday. So these two whistleblowers are going to come in front of the American people, in front of the House Oversight Committee on Wednesday for about six hours. And the American people are going to get to hear the truth from two credible people on the front lines that were in charge of trying to find corruption within the IRS. And here, what this FBI agent confirmed is they were blocked at every turn. They were tipped off. The Secret Service tipped off the Biden as as well as the Biden transition team. Why would the Biden transition team need to know that the whistleblowers were about to interview Hunter Biden? So I think this is good stuff, and it adds credibility to our whistleblowers. So that's who drove them crazy. So if you're an IRS person, listen, I don't really know them well I just picture an accountant, an aggressive accountant, and if they're just trying to do their job and they're not political, it angers them when you go outside the lines. It, not saying it's politics. I'm sure that Trump does stuff that might have aggravated him, too, like not giving up his taxes. But when you give up his taxes, there was nothing there. Did anyone realize that, by the way? You beg for his taxes. He paid them. This guy paid nothing. And we don't even know. He wouldn't even conceal and reveal what business deals he was a part of. We'll see. Congressman Jim Jordan expanded on it. Cut 13. These two whistleblowers have been nothing but credible. And today, with the FBI agent confirming key parts of their testimony, that just gives more credibility. This is quickly coming down to, Laura, who are you going to believe? The Biden Justice Department that said parents were terrorists, who said Catholics were extremists, who censored Americans' First Amendment free speech rights, or these two whistleblowers who have impeccable records, who got performance reviews always outstanding, who were the go-to guys when it came to international tax fraud cases. These two guys were the go-to team. Who are you going to believe? These two guys who've now been confirmed by an FBI agent or the Biden uh, Garland Justice Department. I think I'll trust the whistleblowers. So here we go. And you could say, here they go again, Republicans going down. It's not, it's, this is relevant for one reason. Not to get a Biden family member or find out a key attorney or an aide how he relates to Joe Biden and what his international business deals were, and if he's going to harangue all of us in, about taxes and guns and hire 87,000 IRS agents to make every small business miserable, believe me, it's important to know if he is skirting paying taxes, certainly his son didn't pay, the amount of fines this kid paid, now he's a young man, not that young, he's 50, but now the amount of fines he paid don't even add up to 10% of what he earned. By the way, it seems as though all the money's gone, too. John Solomon, on where this is going and new claims about this FBI tipping scandal. He had this story. Cut, John. Uh, Here's John. More of the portrait just becoming more and more clear to the American public. Hunter Biden got preferential treatment. There was political interference in the investigation into his taxes and possibly into his father's uh, uh, interference in some of these matters. 
what we heard today, this FBI agent behind closed doors told James Comer's committee that, in fact, the FBI planned to interview uh, Hunter Biden on December 8th, 2020, along with the IRS, Gary Shapley, the agent that we've heard from the whistleblower. Uh, and the night before, uh, the FBI tipped off the Secret Service and then the FBI tipped off uh, the Biden transition team, Joe Biden's transition team. He was waiting to become president in a few weeks. And that scuttled the entire plan. The next day, the agents were told, you can't approach Hunter Biden. If he comes and gets you, you can talk to him. But otherwise, don't bother him. And the entire interview plan fell apart. Does it bother you at all? I mean, do you continue to say, James uh, Raskin, kind of come out and continue to say this is old news or no, no news? The Wall Street Journal writes, What's taken them so long to investigate Hunter Biden in a big editorial today? As a lawyer who worked on a fraud case for over four decades, I can assure you that securing documentary evidence to prove financial wrongdoing is relatively easy. The proof is in the bank records. In the case of Hunter Biden, Hunter's prosecutors keep dodging review and outlook. The fraud and tax evasion investigation should have taken six months to a year. That, if it took five years, tells me, indeed, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. For the record, Denmark is one of the few countries he didn't do business in. When we come back, I'll take your calls, 1-866-408-7669. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Honest commentary, unique opinions, no agenda. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I think President Trump is not going to run for president under the the auspices of a plea deal. Uh, I actually think Governor Christie is going to surpass um, uh, DeSantis and be the number two, but I don't think think it'll matter. I think Trump, I, I don't understand and can't empathize with President Trump, but I know how old rich men think. And I think that I think once the third indictment, I think this, the laws specifically around these um, state secrets, I think that he has him running for president and the momentum he has is real leverage and power. And I think he's going to cash that leverage and power in for a plea deal that includes no jail time. So is that Scott Gall- Galloway, an NYU professor, kind of surprising? I think it's Karen Swisher on her podcast. He, so he came out. I heard of Scott Galloway, too. I know he's been a political operative on the left. But uh, he says, I know how old white men think and they want to cut a deal. I don't know. Um, I think that especially if they get a ruling today that they're going to delay the documents case because discovery, they're not even complete with discovery yet. What's the right term, Allison? If you are a defense, if you're the prosecutor you're not into you're in discovery. You're still trying to go through all the documents. And if you're a defense attorney, you have to get those doc. You got to get everything the prosecution has. And if they're not done collecting, how could they not honor Donald Trump's request for a delay? Well, because you also have to honor a speedy trial. So I mean, to ask for after so the defense, 20- doesn't the defense usually want the speedy? They trial? They normally do, but to say after 2024, it's so far. Maybe a delay of a few weeks or months, but to say like a year plus already seems. Like a big ask. Really? Um, okay. But when you're in, if you got to at least, until you're done discovering stuff, I have to still look at stuff. Then I got to study it. 
I mean, December, you're saying that if they turned around and said December makes sense? Possibly. I mean, I am not the expert on this topic, but I mean, it's it seems like it's just, they jumped into the deep end with it. It was an unlikely um, request to get approved from everything I've been listening to. And I know February is Alvin Bragg's case. That's what they said, February, March. Got it, which is a problematic because you're coming off Iowa getting ready for New Hampshire. If this thing tightens up, he's going to be miserable sitting in a courtroom. But, uh, I mean, that's what happens when you're indicted. Get it. The other thing would be the Georgia case and then the January 6th case. So you're going to ask for four massive delays. It's a lot. Uh, I guess we'll see. And that's where this comes in. But I, I don't know how cooperation has worked out. I mean... You have, let's say he has four indictments. So the prosecutors who are on different districts, different agendas, the Georgia prosecutor, different from Alvin Bragg, and they got Jack Smith doing two. Hey, guys, uh, let's get on a Zoom call. Let's offer Trump this. Let's say we won't press any charges anywhere if he just drops out. How weird is that? Think about that. I just don't want you to be president again. I don't think the prosecutors would be doing that. I don't think that would be... It's not within their realm of, um, like, that's not their legal authority. You know what I mean? They're supposed to be prosecuting the case, not I, about I, the election. I agree with you. But why do people just say that? It's not a it's not a TV show, right? I mean, you can't just consolidate four different cases that are unrelated to each other at all. I don't think. None of them, none of them are related. I guess January 6th is related to Georgia. Maybe. But uh, that's going to be it. So when we talk about 2024... Big day for Trump. He'll find out if he gets that delay. Meanwhile, Jack Smith's in a big rush. Can someone be in a rush to to prosecute President uh, Biden or tell us what's happening? Can you possibly tell us what's happening with President Biden's case? Thousands of pages at the Penn Center, thousands of pages at his house, thousands of pages at the University of Delaware, then his lawyer's office on top of that. Can someone tell me what's going on? I know this. It's not hurting Trump in the polls. We'll see if things tighten up at all. Uh, Meanwhile, Steve Hilton, great contributor here at Fox, thought this about the media uh, who keep on telling, saying that the democracy is in danger because of Trump. Democracy in danger because of Trump. Have you been watching Joe Biden and the student loan situation? Uh, The Supreme Court said you can't do this and he's doing it anyway. How many times have we seen him circumvent a court ruling? while ripping another branch of the government, cut to. It's absolutely hilarious, unintentionally hilarious. These people who lecture us endlessly right. about democracy, right, democracy dying and democracy under threat, oh. Th- their version of democracy is it's all great as long as you get the right answer, which is the one that they want. Democracy's fine as long as D- Donald Trump doesn't win elections. And it's just hilarious to see that the way they still can't, re- can't see how ridiculous they sound. And by the way, all these people who are rooting for Biden... That's the point. They want Biden in the head because right. they can see that he's completely useless. He's not in control. And that's why the establishment, including on the media, love having Biden there because the people behind the scenes actually are controlling him because he's clearly incapable of doing the job. That's why you've got this massive establishment move to try and get Biden reelected despite his obvious defects. Yeah, it is kind of strange. And on the on the right, the the big story is Ron DeSantis is to fire some people, rejigger. He's going to South Carolina today. Uh, where is he going to be? Uh, Tim's oh yeah, Ron DeSantis is going to be in Columbia, South Carolina. That's the third big event. Got Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. I think Nevada right after that. So he's going there. He's not quitting anytime soon. And for those people who don't like or do like DeSantis, 
firing people, letting people go, spending too much money. That is part of it. Just remember that. I know people make a living off pretending as if every day is doomsday, even though it's July. But it's not. Tim Scott earning a ton of money, a lot of respect from people, not really rising that much in the polls. He hosts a town hall in Salem, New Hampshire. Trump will attend a Lynn County GOP meeting in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. What I don't think helps Trump, but who knows, is going after the sitting governor is extremely popular because she wouldn't endorse him. But she's not endorsing anybody. So why get angry? Just file it away. And if they need something later, just say, listen, you didn't endorse me. I'm not going to do it. But DeSantis uh, fired roughly a dozen staffers and more dismissals are expected in the coming weeks. A source familiar with the firings described those who were let go as mid-level staffers across several departments while departures were uh, while other departures related to cutting costs. The exits come after departures of Dave Abrams and Tucker Obershane, uh, veterans of DeSantis' political campaign. Dave Abrams, I know. Uh, I've, I've dealt with him before. He's real good. So we'll see what happens. A lot of times they move over to the super PACs. Well, they'll stay involved. Or the governor's got an office, too. A lot of them wanted to get on the campaign, but others wanted to stay in the governor's office. Because especially now with the governor out a lot, there's a lot to do that you normally don't have to do. The other big story yesterday was the No Labels Party. They got millions of dollars, and they got Joe Manchin, and they have Joe Manchin and Ambassador John Huntsman. Here's what both said yesterday, cut four. The common sense majority has no voice in this country. They just watch the three-ring circus play out. Why are people scared to have an option? Why are they scared that they may be threatened to do the right thing? Why are they scared to say, hey, you're too far to the left here. That doesn't make any sense. So we don't live our life over in extremes. I don't live my life on the right or the left. I've got to make decisions for myself and my family. And I do think that I get that a lot. People just say, you know what? I don't hate the left. I don't hate the right. I think we are getting too divided. To go through the primary process, you have to be extreme because you're going to the extreme base that are passionate about their party, which only makes up 25 percent of the country, 23 percent for one party, 25 for the other. The rest are independents, undecided. That's where the no labels movement comes from. That and the dissatisfaction with the bipartisanness of the partisanship in the White House. And these are known candidates. I mean, not many people knew John Anderson Nobody cares about Gary Johnson outside New Mexico. What is Aleppo? You know, Ralph Nader's an activist. Cornell West will get 1% of the vote, but, you know, he's just a professor. Ideologue. I'm not saying he's not a bright guy, but he's not viable. These other guys are pretty experienced. And Kirsten Cinema might be somebody, too, that gets on the no-levels ticket. She left the Democratic Party, remember? Exciting stuff. Colonel Allen West, Brian Kilmanshaw. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I want you to know that we have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state, that the Palestinian people deserve self-determination and autonomy, that the dream that the dream of a two-state solution is slipping away from us, that it is not, that it does not even feel possible. So Palestinian protesters interrupted a conference with Jayapal there, Congresswoman Jayapal, and she got up and said something. That's not misspeaking. That's your thought. And you're boycotting President Herzog, who's coming into town with the rest of the squad, 
because you don't like Israel. No one's worse than a Rashid Tlaib, but she's Palestinian and she's a maniac. She's been a maniac. We watched her screaming at Donald Trump before she was a congresswoman when he had an event. She had to be hauled out and she hates Israel. And Democrats are quickly running around apologizing for them, making our walk the the, uh, the comments back and saying, well, no, we just have a problem with Netanyahu. Oh, you have a problem with Netanyahu? He's been the longest serving prime minister in Israel history. You pretty much got a problem with the country. With us right now is Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. Uh, you know him well. He's now uh, rights. He's a American Constitutional Rights Union Executive Director. Colonel, welcome back. Good to be with you, Brian. Thank you. Did it sound like she misspoke? No, it's pretty clear what she said. And really, if you think about it, uh, it is the position of the base of the Democrat Party. It's a very leftist. It's a very anti-Semitic. Uh, it's a very anti-Israel uh, party. And that reflects also in the policies of the Biden administration. When you look at how really this administration is trying to underhandedly go back to the Iranian nuclear agreement, which just puts more money in the coffers of Iran, the fact that you're talking about a Palestinian authority that really does support Islamic jihadism and terrorism. As a matter of fact, uh, within the week, we just saw, uh, I don't want to call it a lone wolf, but a, a, a jihadist terrorist that drove his car into people and in the, in the Jews there in Israel, and then also tried to get out and stab people. We know about the rockets and missiles that come over, courtesy of Hamas, from the uh, Gaza Strip into Israel. So I don't know where Jayapal and all of these other leftist maniacs are coming off talking about a country that is very diverse. It's the, truly the only democracy that you have in the Middle East, and they're always talking about threats to democracy. Uh, Islamic jihadism is a threat to the only democracy in the Middle East, but yet that's what they want to side with. It's amazing. We're moving towards it with the Abraham Accords, Sudan, Bahrain. we watching uh, Qatar, UAE, and soon Saudi Arabia had President Trump got reelected. They were lining up to to set up trade agreements and recognize Israel. And they're sure enough, they're landing fights in Saudi Arabia now directly from Israel. That's where we were heading because they recognized that Iran was the problem and they appreciated that we were taking aggressive action to isolate them. Now it's all reversed. It's back to the future. The Palestinians need this or need that. They have blown every opportunity to advance their freedom because they elect people like Hamas and they decide to terrorize instead of negotiate. Now, you're absolutely right. And you think about how all of the rhetoric from the left when Donald Trump said that we would move the American embassy uh, to the rightful capital of Israel, which is Jerusalem, away from Tel Aviv, and all the threats that came from uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the people in the Palestinian Authority and the jihadists and terrorists, and even the Democrat Party, you know, spoke down about this. And what happened? We moved the embassy and everything was absolutely fine because people understand strength and might. So when you have a sitting member of the United States House of Representatives, an elected official, saying what she says, it completely undermines the foreign policy and the foreign relations of this country with our number one best ally in the Middle East. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with this meeting today. Uh, I'd like to hear the words that are going to be exchanged, not in front of the cameras, but when the cameras are not around. Right. Look, they don't like uh, Netanyahu. Biden doesn't like Netanyahu. Obama hated Netanyahu. 
They, they didn't even want mm-hmm. him to leave out the front door, remember? He had to leave out the back door. They never yeah. have a, a setting. He looked to undermine Netanyahu's election, and then Netanyahu came here to rip the Iran agreement uh, and to a standing ovation in Congress. We remember all that. So Seattle Times, yeah. so Pramila J. Apollo has, in my view, an insincere, forced apology. She said, words do matter. So it's important that I clarify my statement. I do not believe the idea of Israel as a nation is racist. I do, however, believe that Netanyahu's extreme right-wing government has engaged in discriminatory and outright racist policies, and there are extreme racists driving the policy within the leadership of the current government. What's she talking about? Punishing Hamas? Yeah, it's amazing to me because when you look at the makeup of the Knesset, it's a, you know, multicultural, you know, legislative body. The fact that you have Arabs that are able to go through checkpoints and come in and and work there in Israel. So if you want to talk about who is providing better economic opportunities and security and living conditions for, you know, Arabs, it is, you know, Israel. You you don't see that being uh, on the other hand. And so when you talk about this two-state solution, let's go back to what the United Nations and everyone had decided it was going to be Israel and Jordan. But thanks to Yasser Arafat and his, uh, you know, terrorist activities, then we had this whole thing started with the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which has morphed into the uh, Palestinian Authority. But it's still the same thing. It's still a terrorist-based organization. Right. That's absolutely true. So uh, it gets worse now. When in doubt, what do you do? Play the race card. So Jay Powell says the blowback from calling Israel racist state reveals a double standard. It's not right to call out progressives, but then but then not recognize the most of us that get called out are women, black, brown and immigrants. You cannot just cannot skip over that. That's uh, a double standard. And these are the people who are boycotting Herzog, Elon Omar, Jamal Bowman, Alex AOC, Rashid Tlaib and her. So is this racist? Is this because she's a woman? No. You know, one of the things that someone should advise uh, the congresswoman on is, you know, give up the shovel because if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. And she continues to dig. And this is not about racism. And, of course, the, the fallback to anything that the left does is to go back to, well, you're, you're coming after me because you're a racist and, and everyone's a racist. Or when you think about the insidious statement that, you know, the whole thing about affirmative action in that Supreme Court case, now all of a sudden they're trying to say the Asian Americans support white supremacy. So the left always tries to use this as a fallback, and that just means that they don't have any means by which they can stand on this issue or they can present any, you know, viable argument when it comes to what Jai Paul said or any of the things that they uh, advance as far as their ideological agenda. I just, you know, there are real times in, in this world where there's racist, sexist, there's stuff that goes on. We've got to stop it. But when people do this and say these things, it makes people not want to hear it. Uh, it makes people disgusted. Everyone knows there's nothing to do. Your anti-Israel stance is the problem. Yeah. That is why Debbie yeah. Wasserman Schultz called you out. Congressman Moskowitz called you out. Uh, Gottenheimer called you out. Are they, are they anti-women racists? These are all Democrats. Come on. What is wrong with these people? Do you believe, here's a bigger question. Do you believe they sincerely believe that? That they're they're right because they're women and and they're they're minorities, they're they're getting blowback. 
No, they they don't sincerely believe that. That is just the uncomfortable thing to say to try to distract away from the comments that they make. Uh, and that's really what the what the left does is that if you come after us or you attack us, just the same going back to Barack Obama. Uh, if you disagree with the policies of the Obama administration, you are a racist. And even if you were black, you're still a racist. Uh, it was all about identity politics. But what is amazing to me is that you can undermine women's sports, uh, but that's not sexist. You can do all of these things, you know, affirmative action, which really says to me uh, or young black people that you cannot uh, make it on your own merit. Uh, you, you have to, you cannot make the standard, but that's not racist. Of course it is. It's a soft bigotry. But when you attack them or you disagree with them, it always has to be about your white supremacists, your racists, what have you. Uh, they don't believe that. They just try to make right. you self-censor. I want to bring you uh, just uh, bring the world this uh, this relatively breaking news. According to Donald Trump, Jack Smith apparently is giving Trump to this week to report to the grand jury. Uh, so he's got to go in front of the grand jury, I assume, for the January 6th investigation. So now, this is what he went on to write on Truth Social. So now, Joe Biden's Attorney General, Merrick Garland, who I turned down for the U.S. Supreme Court in retrospect based on the corrupt, unethical actions, very wise decision, together with Joe Biden's Department of Justice, have effectively issued a third indictment and arrest of Joe Biden's number one political opponent, who's largely dominating him in the race for the presidency. And he goes on. What are your thoughts about looking at two more indictments and him being the front runner of your party? Well, I... Well, I think without a doubt what the left is trying to do is, you know, demonize Donald Trump as best as they possibly can. Uh, if he comes through and wins the, the uh, GOP nomination, uh, that's what they're going to come back on is all these quote-unquote indictments. But yet uh, there's a verse in the Bible that says, do not focus on the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own. You look at this corruption in the Biden administration, we've got to continue to talk about it. It'll be very interesting to see the whistleblower testimony before the House Oversight Committee uh, coming up today, uh, because the Biden administration, with the help of Merrick Garland and Christopher Wray, are really trying to sidestep and create a distraction from all the things that they are doing and what's going on. And they're, you know, without a doubt, they're going after their number one political opponent, which is not even third world. That's like fourth world. Uh, no question. Uh, what about, I just want to get your take on what's happening with, uh, our military and the, our inability to massively produce weapons and ammo. Jake Sullivan's asked about it. You've known about this. The president admits unbelievably that we are out of 155, uh, 155 artillery. That's why I'm giving you cluster bombs, which is insane to admit that. Here's what Jake Sullivan yeah. said about that. Cut 22. When we came into office, uh, we found that the overall stocks of 155 ammunition, which is the NATO standard ammunition you use for artillery rounds, uh, was relatively low. But more importantly, Jake, we discovered that the ability to mass produce that ammunition would take not days or weeks or months, but years to get to the level that we needed. So the President Biden ordered his Pentagon to work rapidly to scale up the ability of the United States to produce all the ammunition we could ever need for any conflict at any time in the future. We are in the middle of doing that. And month on month, 
we are increasing our capacity to supply ammunition. Number one, he's cut defense. It's behind inflation. It's going to be uh, below 3%, maybe the first time in our history. And, of course, he goes on into detail, won't bore everybody with it, to blame Trump. Just like Obama spent the whole time blaming Bush. He's blaming Trump for this. You know these people. You know what it's like to be in a conflict. What What are your thoughts? Well, you just heard excuses from the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. If you knew this coming into office three years ago, what did you do about it three years ago? Now, all of a sudden, uh, you're making an issue of it three years down the road, and you're trying to go back and blame someone else. Look, the Biden administration has not been focused on military readiness. Everyone knows that. Everyone sees that. It's not just with the 155-millimeter ammunition. It's with our uh, aviation platform systems, F-35s. It's with uh, our b two bombers, is with uh, the Javelin systems that we are running low on, is with the uh, Stinger missiles that we're running low on. And all of this has been uh, a result of the engagement in Ukraine. It has nothing to do with Donald Trump. So they have focused more on their ideological agenda, this wokeness and these DEI programs and all of these other things that the military should not be engaged in, which is part of their agenda, instead of making sure that we're ready to go out and train, equip, and deploy to fight and to win. Uh, So this is all on the Biden administration. And again, this is one of those huge national security issues that we need to force them to uh, take responsibility for. And it's an important aspect of the National Defense Authorization Act, which the Senate now has to deal with. Gotcha. Uh, Colonel Allen West, thanks so much. It was great. My pleasure. God bless. Be with you. Gotcha. 1-866-408-7669. Uh, this is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls and your emails, briankilmeade.com. Uh, yeah, briankilmeade.com, and uh, just click on comments. I'll get to them. Don't move. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to, to your, your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. The state of Florida, and I say this as a Florida born and raised uh, Orlandonian, we're not welcoming many people of different cultural backgrounds and economic classes. And I do think that this offers the Biden administration and President Biden an opportunity to be that contrast, to help lead on immigration reform, help lead on issues that impact working class people, and, and really provide a vision for this country and for our state. Because right now, we do not have one under Governor Ron DeSantis. Which is pretty amazing. They are actually going to try to label Ron DeSantis a racist and Florida a racist state. Yeah. And they're saying more people are leaving. Then they said, oops, we got that wrong. We're totally right. Uh, totally upside down. More people are coming than leaving. So that was Congressman, uh, Congresswoman Anna uh, uh, Eskamani uh, on MSNBC. He's talking about how racist is in Florida and why people should leave. And what a great contrast it would be to have Joe Biden talk about how understanding he is. And uh, unlike Ron DeSantis, it's amazing. As soon as someone gets popular, they will they're ripping his wife like you would not believe. They say she is a spokesperson now for anti LGBTQ, whatever the rest of the letters are. Really? One of the kindest, most insightful people around. Now she's a mean spirited ogre looming in the background who wants to be Jackie O. Or what do they call it? A Walmart Melania. When you say someone shops at Walmart and you think you're putting them down, from FBI agents down, would you stop it? Because you're not. Most Americans, I don't, I don't really hang out with, uh, with famous actors and billionaires. Most Americans are in Walmart and Kmart. And they get their all because you don't have to go anywhere else. You got everything there. And people, some people still want to shop. 
You're not putting people down when you say they're in Walmart. So I ask you to write, and you are. Um, and here's uh, one of the comments. Uh, and this is what I brought up on this show earlier, and I brought up on TV about whistleblowers. There is, uh, there is, there is hell to pay if you're a whistleblower. You don't get promotions. Oftentimes, you get fired, and you don't get advancement. You pulled off big cases, and you're basically sitting there to rot. Lynn writes this. It says, Brian, Jamie Raskin's interview with the ex-White House communications person, Sinjin Saki, um, reaffirms that the facts are not relevant to the left. You also commented that financial costs for coming forward as a whistleblower can be daunting and possibly persuade some to remain quiet. You should suggest to your viewers to create a GoFundMe page for these folks. The mere thought of that response might give some Dems skid marks. Get it. Have a great day. It would be interesting uh, to do that. I don't think I'm at that point now because not every whistleblower is the same. And and I don't want to say, okay, everyone, you know, you're going to have there's going to be retribution right away if you come forward. So here's some money. It shouldn't be that way. This is why Eric Snowden left the country. He said it's not there's no good venues to be a whistleblower here. And that's where he went to Hong Kong. And then he ends up in Russia. I don't support him. I said there are whistleblower pathways to the guys, people like Grassley. Come forward to people you can trust. But it looks like you can trust them. But the process shows the FBI and DOJ also plays a role, sadly. And it could cost people their career. I hope they still do the right thing, though. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. I come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world, uh, just miles from a serial killer, and the, which turning out to be a terrible mayor. And Mayor Adams, we have a new police commissioner here uh, yesterday, officially, so it's a little bit chaotic. Uh, and we know somebody almost got stabbed on Times Square at 8 o'clock on a Saturday. You think you're kind of safe? Not here. Molly Hemingway's in studio. Dr. Todd Rose, CEO of Think Tank Populous, is going to be with us shortly. And, of course, we'll take uh, your phone calls. But, Molly, let me bring you in. And what about this announcement that Donald Trump made that says that he is a target of, of Jack Smith's when it comes to January 6th? And he says he's been told to report to the grand jury. Yeah, it's interesting because this is the third major uh, potential indictment or indictment that we're dealing with with President Trump, former President Trump. And I think there's another one expected out of Fulton County. Uh, the It's interesting, you know, the Department of Justice uh, under Merrick Garland and Joe Biden is really working extremely hard to imprison their top political opponent. And it's the kind of thing that's a bit crazy because we don't think we do these things in the United States of America, but it's definitely happening. And I think the people, the powers that be are hoping that this means that they can you know, either imprison him or something or keep him from being president. It's not quite working with a lot of the American people who say, wait a minute, what's why? Why are we doing this, basically? And on top of that, you have somebody who's also being investigated named Joe Biden. And we don't know anything about what's going on in his by his so- Corvette. Is he, though? Is he really being investigated? I mean, we just had this news today with these whistleblowers who were talking about how 
every stop was pulled to keep the Biden family business from actually being investigated. And I would assume that the investigation of Joe Biden for his mishandling of classified documents going back to his time as a senator is not actually being investigated. I could be wrong. Right. Uh, They keep on saying this guy, her, is a Republican. Yeah. I mean, a lot of... Why don't we get any leaks? (laughs) Why don't we have any updates? When asked about an update two weeks ago, they said... No updates yet. It's going to take a long time. A well, long time to do what? And I just want to say, not leaking is actually what the Department of Justice is supposed to do, but they do it nonstop like sieves when it comes to the Mar-a-Lago raid, what was found in the Mar-a-Lago raid, what's coming with indictments for Trump. So there are – it's just this – it reinforces what's going to be a major campaign narrative in 2024, which is the two standards of justice, how friends and allies of the ruling regime – get treated one way and then opponents get treated another, which is not to say that this is not serious business. I mean, whether or not you dismiss, you know, the good faith of the Department of Justice, it is a very serious problem for President Trump, former President Trump. It's a very expensive problem. It's a time consuming problem. That's kind of the point, I think. But today's um, a big day. It's a big because day. Because yeah. this, this is the judge, Eileen Cannon, that was uh, was appointed by President Trump. And it's in Florida. And Jack Smith says, let's just do a speedy trial. Let's get this thing going. The president of the United States goes, are you kidding me? I'm running for president. You haven't even given me all the documents you have yet. Let's wait. Do we? Did, she's got to take in all sides. Do you think it's pre- feasible from what you know, Molly, to wait a year to go ahead with a trial? Yeah, I think the Department of Justice does that all the time, not just a year, but sometimes they wait many years to do this, particularly if the target of the trial wants that to happen. Um, But it's so interesting, again, you know, how at the closing days of the 2020 campaign under a Republican attorney general, it was an all, you know, step back from the Hunter Biden investigation. Don't do anything with the Hunter Biden investigation. Don't talk to anybody. Don't do anything because we don't want to appear like we're meddling in the 2020 election. Compare that with Merrick Garland and Joe Biden's Department of Justice, which is openly trying to imprison their top political opponent. I mean, it's the kind of thing you associate with Stalin. It's something you think of as a third world country approach to dealing with political disputes. We know that the regime does not like uh, does not like Donald Trump. That's beyond clear. They ran the Russia collusion hoax against him. They ran impeachment stuff against him. Uh, But this is I think is short sighted. They're willing to destroy a real important norm in our country about not targeting political opponents. You know what's interesting? They're actually making him stronger. Oh. I don't think they ever anticipated this. Do you I, think that indicting somebody you thought would destroy them? Instead, it squelches the rest of the field. You got Tim Scott. First question. Donald Trump got indicted today. How do you feel about Donald Trump? Why is he leading by so much? If, if he gets indicted again but in Georgia and then January 6th, there won't be any candidate running for president whose first three questions won't be about the leader. Right. And also because you don't do this type of operation against someone unless you view them as a very serious threat to how you want to do things. I thought it was interesting how when Bragg did his indictment, everybody sort of roundly said, well, you know, this is a guy who ran for office claiming he would figure out something to get to get Donald Trump over. And he did it. But they said, but this later stuff is going to be serious. And there was a lot of time and energy in D.C. spent on making the last indictment seem very legitimate and serious. And instead, the American people who uh, who support Donald Trump seem to view that second one as even worse than the Alvin Bragg indictment. This is, I don't think, going to fundamentally change anything. But it should make a lot of Americans realize that 
the overreaction, and I do believe it's an overreaction to that horrific riot at the Capitol on January 6th, is really about squelching and silencing political disagreement. And that, again, wise minds did not prevail Mm. in how to handle that. You know, there should have been some calmness about how they responded to that instead of viewing it as a way to imprison all of their political Fox News contributor and senior editor for the Federalist, Molly Hemingway, here. So, Allison, we know that the president said he's a target to the grand jury, but David Spunt says the reporting says no comment. Yeah, no comment from special counsel. And if um, this is the January 6th. Correct. And if Trump's assessment is accurate, he has until Thursday to appear before the grand jury. But as you pointed out, Molly, he's been right every time. About uh, about that he's about to be indicted. He just tells oh, like, yeah. there, there's something should be confidential. It just comes out and says, says it. Right. I do get a kick out of Jack Smith saying no comment. I think he prefers to comment through leaks to the Washington Post. So we could probably wait to hear what they have to say. I, about I heard what a he theory thinks. from somebody that you know that says that the Trump team wants. Well, remember when the people said that Trump who was, had the Iran attack plan and was handing it out on audio tape, that they want that out. That they want people to get used to hearing that. I think partly they just want more information shared on that because I had heard also that the sort of that's like the smoking gun of the Jack Smith indictment, right, that he did this. But they don't actually have any document associated with this. So the the disparate nature between what was said on audio versus the lack of evidence supporting the idea that this was breaking law, I think, is important. But in general, I have found I'll, I'll hear someone say, oh, did you hear what Trump said? And then you listen to and they'll say it was the worst thing I've ever heard in the history of the world. And then you listen to it. and You're like, oh, he was joking or, oh, here's the context. So I have no idea. I mean, it might be it might be exactly what the Department of Justice claims. I just know that the Department of Justice has a history of lying about this individual, leaking about him, you know, uh, working to spy on his campaign working to spread false narratives, squelching bad information on his political opponents. I mean, it's just it's it's a really bad situation that we're in that the Department of Justice has handled, you know, everything from the Russia collusion hoax to the Biden family business investigation in such a partisan and and uh, frankly, like corrupt manner that we cannot trust what they say here, unfortunately. So I want you to hear a guy you probably don't know too well. I've heard of him before. I read a couple of his columns, but now he's an NYU professor uh, he's with, I think it is Karen Swisher on their uh, on their podcast. Listen to what he says is happening. Cut three. I think President Trump is not going to run for president under what? the aus- yeah under the auspices of a plea deal. Uh, I actually think Governor Christie is going to surpass um, uh, DeSantis and be the number two, but I don't think I don't think it'll matter. I think Trump. I, I don't understand and can't empathize with President Trump, but I know how old rich men think, and I think that. I think once the third indictment, I think this, the laws specifically around these um, state secrets, I think that he has him running for president and the momentum he has is real leverage and power. And I think he's going to cash that leverage and power in for a plea deal that includes no jail time. Molly Hemingway. Fascinating uh, thought from someone who does not who I would not hope he would have a future in political prognostication, mostly actually because of the Chris Christie thing. I don't think Chris Christie is running for the Republican nomination. I mean, technically, he is third in New Hampshire. Yeah, he's running on a on an uh, what is his like stuff right now? Chris Ray is the best person ever. The FBI isn't really a big problem. Donald Trump is a Russian asset. This is not a way to win the Republican nomination. So um, whether it's that, this man, I also read that he said that um, he thought Donald Trump would want to 
leave to have more time playing golf and uh, copulating with porn stars? And he said, and I understand that because I want to do that too. And I thought that was an interesting quote from the person you just, uh, from the person you just played. He confessed to wanting to do those things personally. I don't think he's a great political prognosticator. Well, yeah, I mean, it did, it did make headlines. I'll tell you that. So no labels comes out and they have ambassador John Huntsman and Joe Manchin in Manchester, New Hampshire. They got money. They have credible people. Is this the most formidable third party candidate or party yet here here's both men cut for the common sense majority has no voice in this country they just watch the three ring circus play out why are people scared to have an option why are they scared that they may be threatened to do the right thing why are they scared to say hey you're too far to the left here that doesn't make any sense so we don't live our life over in extremes i don't live my life on the right or the left i've got to make decisions for myself and my family your thoughts It's a really interesting thing. Joe Manchin always presents as a conservative because he is a senator of a Republican state. So he has to sort of pretend to be more centrist. He actually votes like 99 percent of the time with that hard left of the party that he just derided. Uh, But it is interesting both that Democrats seem really upset about this no labels thing because they view it reasonably as a threat to Joe Biden. And there is a lot of frustration with Joe Biden. People don't want him to run. They do think he's too old. They do not like how he's running the country. But it's not, you know, so there's there's a concern there. I would ultimately view a third party run as a last ditch attempt to take out Trump should he get the nomination. Um, these were people who had no problem. These people, no labels, had no problem with Joe Biden when he ran last time. And he has, you know, governed in a way that's consistent with what they would have expected. So I have a hard time believing they really have a problem with him. Uh, I think that they said that unless they think they can win, they won't be a spoiler. I don't know how you judge that. <laughs> Um, unless they think they have a reasonable shot of winning, maybe. But I do think third parties are going to be a much bigger issue this year. In 2020, the Democrats actually ran like a really impressive, concerted effort to keep the Green Party off the ballot in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Cornell West is in. Places where they actually can make a difference. And um, third parties always like, you know, nip it at each party a little bit. But I think you're going to see much more just because of widespread dissatisfaction with what the options that are being presented. Molly Henry is sticking around. We have a couple more minutes with her, and then we're going to go to uh, Todd Rose at the bottom of the hour. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're on the breaking news, too, that one of our soldiers evidently inadvertently strayed into North Korean territory and is now in their custody. Hopefully this doesn't become a drawn-out thing. Don't move. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I want you to know that we have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state, that the Palestinian people deserve self-determination and autonomy, that the dream that the dream of a two-state solution is slipping away from us, that it is not, that it does not even feel possible. So that is Jay Apollo. Does she sound like she misspoke there? Words matter. She walked it back and said words matter. And so it's important that I clarify, do not think Israel is a racist nation. Just doesn't like Benjamin Netanyahu. Molly Hemingway here. Molly, this is unbelievable. And now you have people like Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Moskowitz and uh, Gottheimer coming out and saying we uh, we repel we're repelled by that those comments and we're glad she walked it back. 
Well, it's good that you had so many people speaking against what she said. It is This is a topic that grieves me personally. I was just in Israel a few, we- few weeks ago. I have a great deal of sympathy for the plight of Palestinians who I think in particular have been wronged by their leadership. But they keep so electing many- it. Why they so- put Hamas in charge? And and other bad groups. But so much of the people who claim to care about Palestinians, they seem to be mostly motivated by a hatred of Jews. And, you know, statements like this, tropes that, um, you know, like long held anti-Semitic tropes, such as the ones espoused by her, are just, you know, it's, it's a very bad thing. It's a very dangerous thing. And if you really care about helping the situation there, that is not the way to go about doing it. You don't think, <laughs> so uh, Jayapal Tlaib. AOC, Bowman, Ilan Omar, all planning to boycott President Herzog's visit, President of Israel's visit today. So they're not going to show up. So how regretful can she be? She also points out that it's interesting that you I get so condemned, but we're all minority women. Yeah, well, there's, uh, you know, she doesn't view the leadership of Israel as legitimate. Clearly, she said this repeatedly. Um, Tlaib's the worst. Yeah, they they uh they they have a pattern of getting getting caught up in this. Um but this really is a you know, this is uh this is a fraught situation and I wish that people who cared about the Arab population, the Palestinian population would do more to hold their leaders to account. I mean, they even when you just think about how these people have been treated as refugees for multi-generations, rather than improving the economic situation for these people, the leadership actually likes to keep them kind of in poverty. And friends of these people who who were uh, putting pressure on that leadership would do much more to help the situation than taking pot shots at Israel leadership. I, I would think so. So when you find out, and I want you to hear this, that we're out of bullets, we're out of ammo, we're out of javelins. You would think that this administration would be backpedaling, scrambling. No, they don't. They have a fallback plan. I want you to hear it. It's Jake Sullivan who did all the rounds. But at CNN, it actually asked the question that had him off balance. Cut 23. There is a need for a bridge between today and the day when we have hit the mark uh, that we need some months from now, where providing cluster munitions fills a gap for Ukraine. And the president was determined not to leave Ukraine defenseless and allow them to have that. You know, it's interesting. The previous president used to talk frequently about how his generals told him they were running out of bullets. When we came into office, nothing was underway to solve that problem. We are solving that problem. We have been working on that going back to the beginning of this war when we discovered the problem. It takes some time, but the president is confident that we will put the United States in a position to have all the ammunition that we need for any potential contingency at any point. Molly. I know you and I probably disagree about the goodness of ending the 20-plus year war in Afghanistan. But the idea that the previous administration did nothing by trying to reposition our country to fight China, basically, while the current administration, which has had you know, a very confusing strategy of how it's been getting involved in this proxy war against Russia, giving ammunition to the point that we don't have enough to defend ourselves. Like that's just it, it's the statement doesn't even make sense. But when James the president said uh, he said the previous president said that generals used to tell him he's out of bullets. Yeah. And the previous president doubled defense spending. And this guy is under under inflation. We're cutting back defense. He's done nothing to unconsolidate these weapons manufacturers and ramp things up to get Taiwan, even the even the military equipment they paid for already. Yeah, this is not uh, this is not an administration that has much clarity about what it perceives as our greatest threats and how to prepare for them. And 
we are how many years into this and still blaming the previous administration for the failures and of this one? I guess who else did that? President Obama, nonstop. And Bob Gates well, talked about that in his book. <laughs> many presidents do that. Right. Yes. Uh, not like this. It's amazing. This guy's three years in. Uh, Molly, thanks so much. We look forward to seeing you all over the channel. What else is going to be on? I'll be on Outnumbered later today and Gut Held tonight. Now I have a reason to watch cable. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, listen, we come back, Dr. Todd Rose, who will enlighten you. Don't move. Brian Kilman Show. Radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Second time in a year they've successfully struck this bridge. I think it's just remarkable that the Ukrainians have been able to do a deep attack that's a central artery, really the central artery for the Russians in the south of Ukraine. Um, by hitting this bridge, they're just demonstrating time again. I think as much as it's strategic in terms of its value connecting Russia and Crimea, it also is symbolic in the sense of Russia cannot protect its rear lines of communication and logistics. And this is a time when the Russians have been trying to flood Crimea artificially with people because there's a vote coming up in September. They want to make it look like it's really part of Russia and that the choices that are made there are really not that of the Russian hand. So that's Clint Watts, an expert uh, on the, what's going on in Russia-Ukraine war on another network. And that's what's significant. Even though it was a drone strike and they didn't get the rails and they can repair the bridge by September, what does it tell you that the Russians can't keep the land they stole? And they went deep behind lines to get it. And they'll do it again, I hope. But meanwhile, Russia's retaliation is significant. Uh, they are no longer allowing grain to leave the country. Grain is their number one export. And Ukraine feeds a lot of the world and and including Africa. So what I think we should do, NATO should escort the ships out. What are they going to do? Escort the ships out. They're barges. They're not a military distraction. You can't say I misinterpreted that flatbed grain filled barge for a for a uh, destroyer. So we should escort them out. If not, people starve. Isn't that a good enough reason? Cut 21. The grain deal is really one of those geostrategic issues. If you remember a year ago when the grain deal really kicked in, it allowed a lot of that grain, the wheat basin of Ukraine, to be exported out to other countries, which really staved off some of the food crises that we were talking about possibly occurring in places like Africa or Asia. With that coming back online, that that embargo essentially by the Russians, we're going to see grain prices probably increase. You're going to see fewer exports. But this also puts more pressure on the negotiation table. And I think that's why the Russians did that. That's why they moved out of it. We're coming to, uh, again, just like you said, what's going to happen in the next few months. But really, everyone's looking strategically to what do the Ukrainians get done by the fall? And if grain prices and food crises around the world are spiking, heat and oil becomes an issue again. We have a very cold winter, let's say, uh, in Europe. This will all put more pressure uh, uh, on NATO, the European Union, to try to come to some resolution for this conflict. There'll be pressure, huge pressure, if people are starving to death, no doubt about it. All right, the other major issue that's facing this country, this country, uh, support for that war, too, and support for education. School choice is one of the hottest issues on, on the ballot in the country, in the states. I mean, I'm just, yesterday I did a feature on charter schools in Yonkers, New York. And the charter school is off the charts. They're unbelievably successful. 
But the teachers unions and the Democrat, the Democratic run teachers unions are go doing everything they can to cut the knees out of these charter schools. And they're saying we are now demanding that 50 percent of all the population of this charter school in the Yonkers be from outside Yonkers, which is wrong. It's against their literally against their charter. And they got to pay to bring people on the outside in Yonkers. It makes no sense. But it's the war that's going on because people are so happy with the education system uh, and the results they had, especially since the pandemic. This is not news to Dr. Todd Rose, CEO of Think Tank Populist. Education is the forefront of his mind as a professor at Harvard. Uh, Todd, uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education, member of the faculty there. Uh, Dr. Rose, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. So, I mean, education is a hot issue. It is your hot issue. When it comes to college, everyone's talking about student loans and, and paying back now. But for you, your focus has been on what you learn when you get to college. It seems like the numbers are going down because more and more people are saying, is this worth it? Harvard, obviously, you get in, you go. But for the rest of the country and to other institutions, is that a worthy question to ask? No, that's exactly right, which is, you know, you see all the data now with Gallup came out and said, basically, confidence in higher ed is almost at an all-time low. And for me, everybody focuses on the cost, which it definitely is too expensive, but that's missing what's really going on, which is in our research, what we find is that people are just really frustrated with what happens when you get there. And it, it boils down to this. The American public wants it to be practical. Look, just help my kid get into a career that they enjoy and that they can make a decent living. And the reality is they don't believe that that's what colleges are trying to do anymore. And they're not wrong. When did you realize that? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I used to be a professor um, and, you know, I've since left to start my own thing because I felt like, you know, while I loved the people I worked with, I really did. I felt like there was this drift away from the actual customer to trying to engineer a society that we wanted rather than seeing our role as enabling the American dream for every individual. And when you start seeing these people and you're talking, you're talking about the elite of the elite, uh, if they're not the smartest, they're the most connected. So you started realizing that maybe when they get out, they're not really getting what they pay for. No, of course. Right. And, and, and you don't take my word for it. I mean, I think you see this CEOs all over the country are actually saying, look, these, these, these kids aren't prepared for the things I need them to do. So we've got this incredible disconnect, right? The public and parents want kids prepared for good careers. CEOs want talented people ready for careers. And whatever else universities are doing, they're not focused on that anymore. And if they can't get back to what their real job is, they don't deserve to stand in between people and their aspirations for a good life. So what do you want to do about it? What's your message to the American public? Demand a better curriculum or don't go to that institution? Here's what I would say. And, and it's actually way more practical than people think, which is, look, at the end of the day, this obsession with selective colleges and, and elite schools, it is not what the public cares about. In fact, in our, in our own research, out of 66 priorities for what people want for higher ed, it ranks almost dead last. People just want to get trained for the jobs they want. So look, we've got to stop thinking about elite schools as being the future of education in America. They're not. The future are schools like Arizona State, like Southern New Hampshire, and I'll tell you, even my friend Sal Khan, who's doing some amazing things to completely circumvent 
this entire institution and connect people at no cost to amazing careers. That's the future. So as long as we keep playing this game of everyone chasing elite status, it's going to keep going and it's not going to get better. But if we realize this is not what we the people want and we start talking that way and we start expecting that these institutions serve us, um, we will start getting somewhere better. And, and, and it really matters. And just the last thing I'll say there is we're seeing the power of consumer demand in other sectors of the economy, right? When we wake up and say, we don't like this anymore, companies start reacting. The same can be true in higher ed, but we have to start demanding it. And I think one thing, because, uh, you know, I, I feel bad when I talk about the price of colleges. I don't think it's affordable. I, I would do anything, uh, you know, uh, thankfully now. When I when I went to school, I maxed out on all my insurance, excuse me, of all the aid possible. I took out loans, but I also got maxing aid because of the income of my family. So, mm-hmm. but I was able to, I didn't go to the schools I, I, I initially wanted to. I went to my third choice because the other two were just out of my range. What you're trying to say is if more people say, this is out of my range, I'm not going into debt to pay it, that will force the prices to come down, right? Of course it will, because it doesn't cost that much to educate someone at a high level. All that cost, the 60 grand a year, is administrative bloat. And I can tell you that the public cares about affordability, but they are not on board with just free college for everyone at the taxpayer's expense. Only 26% of the public in our research is in favor of that. So they want institutions to drive costs down. And unless we demand it, it's not going to happen. Why would it? When you said Arizona State and Southern New Hampshire, those two things are known for on, a strong online institutions too, right? They are. And what they've done, and, and, and I think they deserve a lot of credit and people should pay a lot of attention, is they are flipping the script. It, it, it's a hybrid, right? And, and there's something really perverse. Just think about this for a minute, Brian. How crazy it is that we've allowed um, higher ed quality in these elite institutions is defined by how few people they can get away with educating. That is so perverse. And so, you know, what folks at like Arizona State um, and like President Crow there um, and Southern Hampshire and a bunch of other places are saying, no, hold on. The real game should be who can educate as many people to the highest level. That should be who we hold up. That's who we should respect. And they're doing it while also bringing the cost down. And I think that's the future. Dr. Ty Rose, thanks so much. Always great to talk to you. This is the hottest topic in America. I think it's uh, outside all the sensationalistic court cases that goes on. I think it's the one issue that resonates with everybody, wherever you are. Expensive colleges, quality of education, better results for the kids. Appreciate what you do. Thank you. Good talking to you. You got it. CEO of Think Tank Populous. Always great. Dr. Todd Rose. And one thing that I think is pretty clear, charter schools work and demanding more of these kids in schools will be more effective. You'll end up with more quality students down the line. I do think a goal of higher education is great. I think affordable higher education is key. When we come back, I'll do a simulcast with the great Stuart Varney on his great show. And then afterwards, I'll have some time to squeeze in some calls. So if you want to be on a national show and be seen on Fox Nation, do it. Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney. Live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. 
Yeah, we're not quite back with Stuart Varney yet, but right at the back end of this, I want to take your calls. And we'll talk about the third-party play. We're talking about the Kerry calamity in China and the corroboration and cooperation that it seems as though we had Gary Shapley come out as an IRS investigator. And now he's got an FBI, another whistleblower, come out and say the same story about Hunter Biden and the slowdown of the investigation and the scope. And now we have another corroborator. So let's listen to it. On your screens, and there he is. Brian, the White House defended the Secret Service ending its investigation into the cocaine found in the White House. Roll tape. There is hundreds of visitors that traveled through uh, this area uh, where, um, where, the specific, where, uh, where the cocaine was found uh, across that weekend. And so I'm going to leave it to them for any additional information, uh, but certainly not going to, to, going to opine on, um, on, on the process here. Uh, but we believe it was a thorough investigation. Are you buying that, Brian, a thorough investigation? Of course not. And you're not. And your and your viewers are not. And my listeners are not. Nobody's buying it. And the Secret Service did two things. I know they're not known as investigators, but the FBI was helping, according to Chris Ray, aiding any way possible. So you get an investigator in there, you'll get the answer. And they go to extreme measures to do it. Why not? When it comes to investigating every other element of things that go wrong in the White House, the Trump years or afterwards, they have no problem with resources. What is worse, Stuart? That they tried and came up empty or that they didn't try and want us to believe they did. I think either way, it's not good. If I'm the Secret Service, I'm not involved. I say, hey, listen, Mr. President, sorry about it. This is this is my livelihood. This cocaine of the White House. This makes me look terrible. How did it get in? At least I got to find out to make sure it never comes in again. And he has no answer. And there's no concern. Stuart, another thing I did. I know you are in jeans hanging out on your farm on the weekends. But I watched every Sunday show. And I watched it all. The only person the people that bring it up is Shannon Bream. They don't even yeah. bring it up. I don't think they have any idea. Yeah. And you saw that with his Hillary Vaughn, too. She would well, ask questions but, on Capitol Hill. But the Democrats obviously realize that cocaine in the White House is a very big story. And if you, you better get rid of that fast because it looks absolutely terrible. They don't care about it. They don't want an investigation, Brian. And they couldn't even tell us where it was. They had it in three right. different locations, and you need security to get there. The president said you would absolutely, the former president said you absolutely would know who it was that came through. You only have a certain amount of people that did it. And you know what? I'm sure more than one person knows who it is, too, on top of that. And if it wasn't the president and his son and his family, uh, where was the key to the box, number one? Right. And number two is just say, not my family, certainly not Hunter. Hey, Hunter, why don't you have a press conference? And why don't yeah. you tell us it wasn't you? Because you're the only one on tape multiple times, usually shirtless, doing crack, doing coke. And no one's really convinced that anybody with that type of track record can give it up cold turkey anyway. I'm in awe if you did, but you'd be one of the first. Uh, this story is not <laughs> going to go away. It, it, you just can't have it end like that. Real fast, though, another one for you. Bud Light sales continue to fall down 24% during the week of July 4th holiday. Is Bud Light done, Brian? You know, I saw Charles Barkley come out in support, and I saw other people ordering it. This is what I think. You get your people who are boycotting. You, got, you made your message. I've never seen anything like it in my life, ever. I've never seen such a massive boycott like this. But you're hurting the distributors, the guys and the men, men and women that drive the trucks, the bottle it up. You're hurting the blue-collar middle-class people now. They already got rid of the marketing genius that came up with this idea. 
They should be rotating their management. They showed a total disdain for their for their consumer in an attempt to expand their base. They destroyed their brand. But understand, too, that there's so many people who make a living delivering this product that suddenly find themselves out of work or without work. I think the message had been sent, if you like it, go back to it. I got it. If he continues to go back to have spokespeople like Dylan Mulvaney who embarrass you, I got it. But it looks like you've alienated Dylan Mulvaney, you've alienated the pride groups, and then you alienated the blue-collar people that buy your product. Yeah. Can you Let's just not destroy the people that need to make a living. That's my message. What a story. Cocaine in the White House and Bud Light. Good Lord. All right, Brian, thank you very much indeed. See you again soon. Go Come. get him, Stuart Varney. Appreciate it. Uh, always great to talk to you. So what I was talking about, too, with Hunter Biden, it looks as though the whistleblower we told you about is Gary Shapley, and he's going to be on Capitol Hill. Uh, yesterday, behind closed doors, he had another uh, IRS investigator, Nameless, uh, come out forward and say there's been a special uh, lack of pursuit of Hunter Biden, and he was warned before the investigation that he was going to be interviewed, and then they told him, you're not going to do an interview. How crazy is that? In this investigation, and now Devin Archer next week. Here's what Jim Jordan said, cut 13. These two whistleblowers have been nothing but credible, and today with the FBI agent confirming key parts of their testimony, that just gives more credibility. This is quickly coming down to, Laura, who are you going to believe? The Biden Justice Department that said parents were terrorists, who said Catholics were extremists, who censored Americans' First Amendment free speech rights, or these two whistleblowers who have impeccable records, who got performance reviews always outstanding, who were the go-to guys when it came to international tax fraud cases. These two guys were the go-to team. Who are you going to believe? These two guys who've now been confirmed by an FBI agent or the Biden uh, Garland Justice Department. I think I'll trust the whistleblowers. So that is going to come to a head next week. And I especially want Devin Archer. Devin Archer's got this unique story where he was actually at a club in which when President Trump was getting this controversy, leaving Ivanka, leaving Ivana Trump, his first wife, for, uh, uh, for Marla Maples. Do you know who ended up playing tennis with Marla Maples to keep her busy and keep her away from the press? Devin Archer. How weird is that? So Devin Archer, for some weird shape or form, ends up going to college and being friends with Hunter Biden and John Kerry's son, and they go into business. I don't know exactly what he did wrong, but he's going to jail. Having said that, why are you going to jail for and, and not tell the truth, especially if you put your hand on the Bible and you go under oath? You could take the fifth. Or you could say, by the way, the big guy is Joe Biden. Tony Bobulinski, pretty credible. Uh, Hunter Biden, a big mess. That could happen next week. And then what are you going to do? Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This hour, we're going to talk to Jonathan Turley about what Donald Trump would say is going to be another indictment, this time on January 6th, thanks to Jack Smith. He's a real dream, uh, a real beauty. Uh, so he's going to continue to pursue that. And we know the Georgia indictment will happen because some 
low-ranking DA wants to become famous like Alvin Bragg, but he's going to be an infamous because they're overshooting the target. Uh, before we go any further, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. John Kerry is actually the Chinese Communist Party's favorite person. It's a bit like believing Bernie Madoff was an ethical business partner. And the CCP exploits his naivety. And John Kerry and many others in the Biden administration fail to see what's obvious, which is that the CCP itself, not climate change, is the greatest threat we face. You think? That is Mike Gallagher. Kerry calamity in China as he meets with the regime that can't be trusted and that builds a new coal plant every day while telling John Kerry it's our fault that we should be uh, more proficient when it comes to clean energy. Number two. I've never been in any race I've ever spoiled. I've been in races to win. And if I get in a race, I'm going to win. That is Joe Manchin talking about a third-party play. Some credible names and impressive dollars are supporting what could be a formidable third party. As frontrunner Donald Trump has key court date today to see if he can delay his document trial at Mar-a-Lago. Number one. The Secret Service tipped off the Biden as, as well as the Biden transition team. Why would the Biden transition team need to know that the whistleblowers were about to interview Hunter Biden? So I think this is good stuff and it adds credibility to our whistleblowers. No doubt about it. James Comer is excited about moving on forward in his investigation. He's got corroboration and cooperation as another FBI agent reportedly about to confirm what the whistleblowers at the IRS have said about the Hunter Biden investigation. That took way too long and yielded way too little. With me right now is Mark Esper, former Secretary of Defense. Uh, Mr. Secretary, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Good to be with you. First on the breaking news, about an hour ago or two hours ago, we learned that one of our soldiers in civilian clothes doing his own tour on the DMZ line, I guess, crossed over to North Korea and is now in their custody. What would you do if you were still Secretary of Defense and this happened? Well, obviously, we have to find out exactly what happened. Uh, it appears from what the li- limited information we have is that he or, or she, we don't know, might have been on a tour. And uh, when you're on these type of tours, at least when I had done it several times in the past, you know, there are strict rules about what you can and cannot do. And it's very clear that if you step into the North Korean side without permission, they can arrest you and detain you. So I suspect that's what what may have happened here. And I would, you know, obviously quickly having our teams uh, at the State Department and DOD working together quickly to get this American, whether it's a service member or not, back into our into our hands. But dealing with them is not traditional North Koreans. I mean, you got to convince it. Obviously, they know he's not a spy. Obviously, he's not he's not to attack them. And they know taking a U.S. soldier, what it would mean. Is this leverage? Yeah. Again, we don't know whether it was an accident, whether it was intentional, some type of stunt. Who knows? But. But, yeah, it does give them leverage, so now they can trade. And this, this is important because it's a very uh, – a lot of tensions right now in the Korean Peninsula. You know, they've been testing ICBMs. Uh, they have been threatening to conduct nuclear tests. Uh, we presently have one of our uh, nuclear submarines that shoots, you know, uh, uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles there the first time since the 1980s. So there have been a lot of tensions in the uh, on the Korean Peninsula that have been, been neglected because we're so focused on – you know, the war in Ukraine and other hot spots. But there is a lot of tension here, and they certainly will try and uh, use this to get something. Uh, Mr. Secretary, a lot of people uh, on the right, Republicans, are not for continuing to fund the Ukrainians' fight and play our role and fight against uh, Russia. I see the huge benefit of it with a small percentage of our defense plan where we're taking, we're watching the Ukrainians 
degrade the Russians significantly, up to 50 to 60 percent of their military hardware, losing generals. Others are being fired and humiliated. The Wagner Group has been basically disbanded. I see a positive for American interests. Where do you stand? Look, I saw China, then Russia, as the greatest threats we faced when I was Secretary of Defense. It was the it was the uh, whole reason to be uh, the focus of our defense strategy. And so if you told me that funding another army, the Ukrainians in this case, and uh, providing them arms and ammunition and material assistance would uh, pretty much decimate the Russian army and, uh, and, and required to take years to build, generals would be lose their jobs and killed in combat, all these things that they would really knock down the Russian threat a few notches, I, I think that's good. I mean, that's, uh, that's advantageous to us. It reduces a significant security threat in uh, in Europe. And frankly, look, I'm a I consider myself a Reagan Republican, and Ronald Reagan would defend a young uh, fledgling democracy like Ukraine against a bigger bully, an authoritarian state run by Vladimir Putin. So there's that part of it as well, where I think we have to stand up for democracies, because if not, it, it eventually comes back to us. And I'd rather have um, you know I'd rather not put American boys and girls in the fight, if the Ukrainians are going to take them on and, and continue to beat them the way they are, then I think we should provide them everything they need to get the job done. But we're not. Uh, the attack may or may not be coming. Long-range missiles from France, F-15s. We're putting together a syllabus to train would-be uh, Ukrainians in F-15s who we haven't identified yet. I mean, that's not air defense, but yet no Patriots. Now they got Patriots, no HIMARS. Now they got HIMARS, no cluster bombs. Now they got cluster bombs. But what has happened in the interim, the 500 days? So many civilians have died. Infrastructure has been destroyed. Is that what they teach at West Point? Uh, No, it's uh, not at all. In fact, I think when historians look back at this conflict, they're going to judge that the Biden administration was too slow, too late on all those major systems that you're talking about, Brian. Uh, You know, we have yet to deliver the attackums. We're talking about it now, but it's been F-16s, Abrams tanks, HIMARS. uh, The list goes on and on and on. And all it has done is prolonged the war, resulted in more casualties, more destruction. And I think this is the biggest failure of the of the uh, Biden administration was is not is to not send them what they need when they need it. it it's really been bad. So your your name, uh, I mean, your job was brought up into play, saying that really our shortage of 155 caliber weapons, our shortage of javelins now, uh, our shortage of ammo, and the need to use cluster bombs is really your fault. Listen to Jake Sullivan, Cut Twenty Two. When we came into office. Uh, we found that the overall stocks of 155 ammunition, which is the NATO standard ammunition you use for artillery rounds, uh, was relatively low. But more importantly, Jake, we discovered that the ability to mass produce that ammunition would take not days or weeks or months, but years to get to the level that we needed. So the President Biden ordered his Pentagon to work rapidly to scale up the ability of the United States to produce all the ammunition we could ever need for any conflict at any time in the so future. So your thoughts about the reality of this? I mean, you didn't anticipate a shooting war in Ukraine, but your thoughts, well, Mark Esper? You know, too often the, the administration likes to point the finger backwards. Always. Uh, look, the, the fact of the matter is uh, we, uh, for years, multiple administrations have, per, and this is with Congress's, you know, Congress is the one that funds all this, uh, have have produced enough munitions, enough armaments uh, that we we call just in time because uh, we want to put the money into other things, weapon systems, our, our troops, so forth and so on. And I think we've now realized the fact that uh, just in time is not enough. We need to focus more on just in case, which means two things. You have to build up ample res- reserves, more than enough of 
stockpiles of arms and ammunition, and you have to have a warm industrial base. And that takes a lot of investment. So, look, I don't criticize the Biden administration for not figuring this out in the first few weeks, but I will say it's been over a year now, and, uh, and, and we're still not seeing rapid movement, at least what I think we should see in terms of building up our arms industry and doing that type of stockpiling, uh, getting industry geared for the long haul. But that have you seen any out. change? I know you have a lot of contacts, and a lot of times people retire and they go into defense contracting. Have you seen any change in how we, how we manufacture things? For example, they I've want long-term you know, contracts. I, I did work in the defense industry years ago. I've seen some. It, it, it demands you know, the letting of long-term contracts, multi-year contracts, building up. But look, uh, Congress is equally culpable here. They do not like to do these multi-year contracts, the things that send that demand signal that industry will do to train workers to build factories. And so we've been behind. And that's what needs to happen is the White House and Congress working together to right. get our industrial base up and moving and in a better situation. Because I'm concerned about China down the road, of not course. just Ukraine and Russia now. But the other thing is these people want to write checks. They want to buy them. I mean, the, this is a for-profit business. So right. with Taiwan paid $33 billion and we have not been able to deliver. Do you know where that's at right now? I, I think we should bundle all these uh, requests, you know, stingers. There's multiple countries want stingers and javelins and all these things. I mean, the stingers are being rebuilt. Javelins, we know how to do it, but you're right. It's it's uh, it, it's a great business right now in many ways, and if we could just uh, get the stocks going. Now, look, the other part of this too, Brian, is we need the Europeans to do more. They need to spend more on defense. They need to buy more munitions. They need to build up their own defense industrial base as well. No question. You guys were closer to get them to do that ever before, but out of the 32 countries, seven are doing 2%. Canada, it wouldn't embarrass me. I don't think they're doing 1%. So to, in order, I mean, there's got to be some hell to pay with that. There's got to be. I, I like that they were kind of discombobulated when you guys came in and Trump came in and said, why should I be the chief funder? You're going to actually go on the, the crack pipe of Russia with Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. And I, in the, I didn't even know about that. That's my bad. I didn't even know about Nord Stream 2 before Donald Trump pointed it out. But there was a logic. There's an illogic to it. But you have a huge advantage now. Now everyone understands you can never depend on Russia again. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, uh, I, I do give President Trump credit here. He was right about uh, the, the allies not spending enough uh, with regard to 2% of their GDP. And he was right about Nord Stream. And, and now we have German leaders re- regretting this, looking back over 20, 30 years of a policy that kowtowed to uh, Moscow. So now is the time to really get the uh, allies to – to increase, but I still don't see it, Brian. I, I still don't see. Um, uh, I see countries in the Baltics and the Nordic states making the move to spending more on defense, but I don't see the Europeans. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't see the Germans, the French, the Italians, and others and, uh, making those types of moves. Well, they, I mean, they have to, or there's got to be. A, it's great to have Sweden and Finland that spend, but I don't think President Biden gets any credit for that. The, you know who gets credit? Russia. Russia is the one that alerted Sweden and Finland to a legitimate worry about their national security. They were not listening to us. They were partners, but they weren't members. But we could have, you guys could have said whatever you wanted. They were not buying into NATO. They just wanted to right. stay neutral. And that's what happened. Now, Joe Biden said, well, I brought them in. No, you, you filled out the form, you know, and you okayed <laughs> it. You now, Turkey. But, I, I, but can, you, can you understand right now enough about weapons manufacturing to decentralize. In the 90s, I understand that you guys, there was incentives to bring these uh, McDonnell Douglas and everybody together. And now clearly that's not what we need. There's no competition. 
So do you think we should decentralize the manufacturing? Well, part of the issue is, uh, you know, after the defense budget fell out at, at the end of the Cold War in the 90s, we consolidated so much. We're only down to two or three arms makers per yes. type of weapon system. So there's really only two suppliers, for example, of Stingers. I think it's Raytheon and – I'm sorry, of Javelins, which is Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. And so you they, the only thing you can do at this point, because they're very complicated systems, is you got to get these multi-year long-term contracts and allow them to start producing. And when you do that, by the way – their savings because it costs less because of the multi-year contracts, but they need to see the money, the, the signal that that's what they need to do. And look, this is great. These are great jobs for the American people too, by the way. Yeah. I mean, we're not asking for donations in Ukraine. That is the situation. Are you concerned that Republicans are not going to be on board in election year? If this stalemate continues in the counterinsurgency, counter operations, counterinsurgency, not counterinsurgency, counteroffensive is slow. Are you concerned yeah, look, about am, the funding? I, I am concerned. I'm concerned that there would be a, a growing chorus of people, particularly in the House, that would say this, this fight's not worth it. Uh, they might argue that the Ukrainians aren't doing well enough on the battlefield. And, and that's one of my concerns. You know, they're, they're, the, the counteroffensive is not making the progress we want to see. I, I would argue we need to give them a little bit more time. But it goes back to the President Biden. The simple fact that he would not give them F-16s, uh, they, they, the Ukrainians, are now facing – Russian aircraft, Russian attack helicopters that are helping blunt their counteroffensive. So this is all connected, interconnected. And, and it would be a shame if, um, you know, as these as Ukrainians get these systems, that we would take our foot off the gas and stop providing them the ammunition and things they need to really win and beat the Russians. Uh, absolutely. So I got to ask you this. General Kelly, uh, who was the chief of staff for President Trump and former Homeland Security Secretary, said that if there was a Trump second term, it would be a nonstop gunfight. It would simply be chaotic, and I'm quoting here, because it would be continually be trying to exceed his authority, and the sycophants would go along with it. It would be a nonstop gunfight in the Congress and its courts. Do you agree? Well, look, President Trump did create a lot of chaos, and, and you know, it all depends on the people he brings in. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to understand the principles that, that guide him when it comes to national security. He's claimed that he could solve this war in 24 hours. I simply don't believe that, Brian. The only person that could stop this war right now is Vladimir Putin if he would pull his troops out of Ukraine and uh, give all the territory back. So, um, you know, so I, I didn't see what else John Kelly said, but uh, that was been my experience. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. Anyone who thought he was going to go in and try to uh, start wars everywhere, it's actually just the opposite. That's one thing I think even his critics would say. Um, Mr. Secretary, always great talking to you. It's a critical time, and it's good to have somebody who has the military and the government and, uh, the government experience and the man- uh, defense manufacturing experience at this time. Mark Esper, thank Thanks, you. Brian. Thank- Appreciate it. And pick up his book. It's great. one 408 I'll come back and take your calls. And then Jonathan Turley on what could be the latest indictment for President Trump. This is just breaking. He's also in court uh, looking to delay his uh, trial till after the 2024 election. And I'm talking about the Mar-a-Lago documents. Busy day. So glad you're here. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you were a tool or an object to help you, uh, in your uh, to help you to bring your business to greater heights, what would it be? I have one tool that's pretty much used in almost every job, and it's actually a cabinet maker's hammer. 
Kevin, oh, okay, and Kevin Nates make a hammer. Okay. It is persuasive enough <laughs> when I need to persuade something. It, Not someone. Something. <laughs> so that's that, uh, uh, that suspect, Rex Hewerman, who looks to be the serial killer, located in my town in New York and Long Island. I interviewed my neighbor, his neighbor, a direct neighbor, who we're trying to get a hold of this guy. He says he's about 6'6", six, six, he's 250. Uh, I got people that went to high school with him. He's a year older than me. People went to junior high school with him. They sent me pictures of this guy. Kind of pretty much a loner and a strange guy his whole life. But now I talked to his neighbor, and his neighbor said he was all over. He would never. He would lean over the fence and start talking to us. And he, this guy's from France, and he was the FDNY officer. And he said, well, you know, I'd be at work a lot. And I find out that my wife was complaining. This guy wouldn't stop talking to me. He kept over. He's been way too friendly. So he goes, I had to go up to him. This guy's not a big guy. And I had to th- basically threaten him. You know, stop talking to my wife. And then afterwards, he was uh, always trying to be friends with him, invite him over to go play cards. But the house was always a wreck. They pulled out between 200 and 300 guns out of his house. And Monday, a grenade. Now, he strangled his victims if it is, in fact, him. And it looks to be him. He strangled these people. What's he doing with 300 guns? He's on suicide watch. I think it's going to connect with this micro DNA that they're doing. I think he's going to be connected to a lot more than three. They say by four by the end of the week. They up to 10 if it's just Gilgo Beach. But it's going to get even bigger. I'll bring this up with Jonathan Turley. But most of all, I'll bring up the court cases with Donald Trump. The one he's going for delay in, in Florida. And Heath just said that he's been uh, been told by Jack Smith he's a target, expects to be indicted. Frank If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. It's my pre- privilege to bring in Jonathan Turley, constitutional law professor at George Washington University, Fox News contributor. Jonathan, uh, more movement with Trump today. Two things. We understand he's in court. Eileen Cannon, the judge, and he wants to delay the trial until after 2024. And Jack Smith wants it in December. And then we find out from the former president himself that he's the target of an investigation on January 6th and expects to be indicted. Uh, First off, first off, Eileen Cannon, what do you think she's going to hear today? Well, you know, most of us expected that this trial would have to go beyond the election. It's hard to uh, imagine how you put all this together because you have a lot of classified material Lawyers have to be cleared. The judge has to be cleared. At least one clerk has to be cleared. You have to do a very difficult voir dire and selecting of the jurors. And on top of that, because of all of these indictments and investigations hitting the former president, his dance card's a bit full. I mean, there, there, it's, you're running out of windows to put a trial in before the election. Remember, the first of these uh, elections is going to be in February. And uh, I think that most judges would have to really think seriously whether they think it's appropriate to have a trial going on while someone is the front runner uh, in an election. I mean, why not postpone it until after the election? But it is a long time, right? I mean, we're looking at the summer before a uh, a fall election. 
Jack Smith's going to go, listen, I'll get him discovery, get him the documents. Uh, Alvin Bragg doesn't need more time. Why should he, why do I get, why do I have to be forced to deal with more time? Well, uh, God forbid anyone would use Alvin Bragg as a measure <laughs> of good process. I don't want, I didn't feel good about it, but I wanted to bring yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, he's under a different set of rules for, in terms of the federal uh, system uh, you know, there's going to be threshold challenges that the Trump team is going to make. Those will have to go up on appeal, and they could conceivably go to the Supreme Court. So even if the judge sets a trial date, it may be for naught, because if they file a couple of challenges and the Supreme Court decides it wants to look at it, um, that could easily put it past the election. So with this second target letter that the president says he got, he hasn't really been wrong when he says this stuff. It usually happens. So what does that mean to you uh, when he said that and if it turns out to be true? Well, uh, these uh, letters are as well as welcome to defense counsel of the case of Ebola. I mean, it, uh, nothing good comes from a target letter. Most cases, the target letter precedes an indictment. I'm a little surprised by this. Um, I don't think it's necessarily certain that there'll be an indictment because I don't know what he would be indicted for. Uh, if if he's going to be indicted based on his January 6th speech, uh, I think that the case could not be sustained. I mean, I think that his speech was absolutely protected under the First Amendment and under a case called Brandenburg. If he brings a case based on that speech, then he will become the Alvin Bragg of federal prosecutors. Uh, the question is, does he have something more? And this is what is really sort of intriguing, is that the January 6th committee spent a huge amount of money, huge amount of time, desperately looking for any direct evidence that the president w- tried to encourage violence or in some ways assisted or conspired uh, in the riot. They came up with nothing even though they had highly motivated witnesses from inside the White House. The question is, did Smith come up with something here? If he didn't, this would be incredibly uh, problematic. I mean, if you're going to bring a charge like this, you really need an an unassailable case, not one that can be easily challenged. So I'm not too sure what we're looking at, but – You know, the vast majority of targets don't go in front of a grand jury. The only client of mine that ever went in front of a grand jury did so because he was granted immunity and had to go. Uh, It's 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 crazy in a case like this for Trump to go in front of a grand jury without any counsel present. Right. So he would he's not going to do it. So do you think he got it wrong? No, he didn't necessarily get it wrong. I mean, no. did Trump get it wrong? Is, Is Trump misunderstanding? No, I don't think Trump's mis- – I think it is probably a target letter. The, the, uh, I'm a little surprised that he got a target letter. Uh, Smith has a reputation for stretching the criminal code, yep. uh, and he, uh, he's he been criticized for that. Now, there's a couple of possibilities. Smith may ultimately not indict and just say, look, I decided to give him a target letter because I wanted to see if he would go in front of the grand jury, but at the end of the day – we decided not to indict. So he could be, this could be an effort of Smith saying that usually there might be an indictment following a target letter, but this is not the usual case. I didn't feel like I could close this out without asking if the president wants to testify. It can also be a Hail Mary throw, you know, and the, the chances that Trump would ever lose his senses entirely and actually walk into that grand jury room. I, 
But other than that, there is obviously the possibility that Smith is serious about this, that he's going to indict. And when that indictment comes down, if it did, it sure the heck better have some new evidence because I, I can't even see a plausible criminal case on the evidence that we currently have. So on January 6th, he's trying to get a speedy trial. Even prosecutors trying for a speedy trial, even though defense has got that usually wants a speedy trial. So now all of a sudden he's got to turn around and go, okay, I'll see what Eileen Cannon says here. Now then where would he try January 6th? Well, you see, that's the, the only reason why this could be a possibility in that I, even though I don't think that there's an evidentiary basis, the trial itself could be handled in D.C. So he would get the world's best jury pool. And it would certainly add pressure to get Trump to consider a plea uh, that would cover both jurisdictions. Assuming that the jury would be against him because they voted so predominantly against him. Right. The problem with that strategy is that regardless of what the jury does, what the judge does, these are also very favorable judges in the D.C. courts. uh, The problem is still the threshold constitutional challenge. And if Smith doesn't have anything in addition to what the January 6th committee had, uh, then Trump could take a, an expedited appeal uh, based on the First Amendment, and he very well could get the case struck down. Wow. Uh, a series of events. The other thing, Jonathan Turley, is that if you're a prosecutor, you just want to get to the truth. It seems like he wants to get to a Donald Trump conviction. And I think there's a fundamental problem with that. Well, I think, honestly, I think, Brian, that the pylon factor is really going to work to Trump's advantage. I mean, the that's why this indictment has to be, have something really earth-shaking uh, for evidence. Uh, you know, the Mar-a-Lago thing, you can say, all right, a lot of prosecutors might not have brought that, but those were conventional types of charges. This would not be, I mean, this would be, in my view, uh, a terrible overreach unless they have new evidence. But then you're going to have what follows is a likely indictment coming out of Atlanta. And at some point, this is going to take over the election. That is, a lot of people are who might not support Trump uh, could very well end up voting for him as a, as a sort of a vote against this type of uh, flurry of indictments. I mean, it, when you're talking four or five indictments, most citizens are going to go, all right, come on. I mean, no president gets indicted before and suddenly this guy has five of them uh, or four of them. I mean, that's It may be a bridge too far for Smith. I, I just wonder, you know, just look at that track record and seeing how he overcharged John Edwards and seeing how uh, do Senator Menendez and some others, he ended up in a situation where he was overcharged, overzealous, or overturned. And I'm thinking to myself, why would you do that? Why would you even give, put somebody in the pressure of being a, an attack dog? At the same time, you have the, the investigator looking into, the special prosecutor looking into Joe Biden. I don't know what's going on there. I mean, we've, all we know is that this, the investigation is moving on. How does one become so public and the other one so quiet? Well, the other thing is that the, the Biden prosecutor has spent a fraction of what they've spent on the Trump uh, uh, special counsel. 
we don't know. I mean, among the things we don't know is there's been no indication that the special counsel has even asked for an interview from the president or received uh, an interview or it required the president to make statements under oath. You know, we saw in the Trump case, they all, you know, the Department of Justice rushed to people like Michael Flynn to get them to make statements because they knew those could be criminally charged as separate grounds if they were false or misleading. We don't see any of that thus far. Now, it's hard to say then what what, what it is that we're talking about here. But this is all the, the bad timing and optics. You know, you also have this week is a huge week to have whistleblowers coming in, respected civil servants who are saying, yeah, we thought there was there was a different treatment given to uh, the president's son. And there were charges that uh, should have been brought. And there were investigations and interviews that were leaked to the target. Those are incredibly serious matters. And to have these have Smith then sending a target letter during that week only sort of deepens a lot of unease that people have about whether the the legal system is being weaponized. And I just want you to hear some of that report about Hunter Biden and them telling you're not going to interview Hunter Biden after they were told they could interview him about taxes and maybe the gun. Cut 14. More of the portrait just becoming more and more clear to the American public. Hunter Biden got preferential treatment. There was political interference in the investigation into his taxes and possibly into his father's uh, uh, interference in some of these matters. What we heard today, this FBI agent behind closed doors told James Comer's committee that, in fact, the FBI planned to interview uh, Hunter Biden on December 8th, 2020, along with the IRS, Gary Shapley, the agent that we've heard from the whistleblower. Uh, and the night before, uh, the FBI tipped off the Secret Service and then the FBI tipped off uh, the Biden transition team, Joe Biden's transition team. He was waiting to become president in a few weeks. And that scuttled the entire plan. The next day, the agents were told, you can't approach Hunter Biden. If he comes and gets you, you can talk to him. But otherwise, don't bother him. And the entire interview plan fell apart. Well, we found out about it. But it is. If you picture what happened after the election, the tumult that that, that ensued, and then the Hunter Biden investigation that would have, would have welled up, they said, no, you're not going to do that. But now it's all coming out. Final thought? Well, these, the, the hearing this week is going to be incredible to hear from these folks. But what's really going to be alarming is the attacks of Democratic members on all these whistleblowers. I mean, you have two very credible whistleblowers who are coming forward to say, look, we weren't allowed to do our job. And yet the Democrats are opposing any further investigation, saying there's nothing to see here. I mean, this is all new stuff. This is a whistleblower coming for the first time, Mr. X, in front of the committee. And Democratic members are still saying, oh, there's just nothing here. We should just end this right now. It's amazing. Uh, so we'll find out if the target letter ends up being an indictment or if it, in fact, happens. Jonathan Turley, thanks so much. But last before we go, Clarence Thomas, you wanted to weigh in on that. We know the comments by Keith Ellison saying he's basically a house slave, ultimate insult. Uh, your thoughts about Clarence Thomas and people saying that he violated some ethics clause, uh, accepting uh, maybe vacations uh, from uh, somebody that could end up in front of his court. Well, there's, there's no evidence to support that they violated the, any ethical rule. The rules apply differently to the Supreme Court. Uh, there's a move to try to impose rules on them, but people are getting ahead of their skis here in terms of saying that there is an uh, ethics violation. The attack by Keith Ellison on uh, uh, Justice Thomas is unfortunately not new, but it's racist and it's reprehensible. 
And I just don't understand how people can continue to stay quiet uh, when you have a racist attack being made against Thomas, who's constantly singled out for his race by the left. And to say that he is a house slave, uh, this is the head, this is the chief legal officer of the state of Minnesota who is saying this. It's also someone who praised Antifa because he said that it put the fear of God into Trump and Republicans. This is one of the most violent groups in the United States. At some point, you would expect someone on the left or Democratic members to say enough. I mean, these racist attacks really undermine our case. But more importantly, it's wrong. <laughs> I mean, Ellison actually said that he should be impeached because he didn't agree with his decisions, as if that's a basis to impeach a Supreme Court justice. It's insane. And the other thing is, if you look at the humble beginnings in which he started and how far he's come, regardless of his beliefs and his rulings, you should be in awe. That's the example you give in America. You could accomplish anything you want. And he was an activist with Malcolm X, and he changed around. He said, this is not getting us anywhere. I'm changing my views, and I'm going to change my views on affirmative action because he lived through it, and he hated the way people looked at him on campus, thinking he only got there because of the color of his skin. So he has a reason for his views and a life story to tell, and I wish people would be mature enough to understand that. Jonathan, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Uh, When we come back, we're going to find out there's a need to know more, and I think there is. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I just want to find out, the more I think about it, as much as I've told you, I think you need to know more. More to know. Okay, let me begin in the beginning. Didn't I just have it right here? You put it right in front of you, Brian. I think it's right under some of their papers. He's looking for his more to know packet with all these great stories that we need to know more of. Hmm. Do you want to start? We can start with the Charles Barkley. No, 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 I got it. It's just not as thick as I remember. Okay, Uh, let's find this. Anthony Fauci still getting U.S. Marshal security detail on taxpayer dimes despite retirement. Documents show this. Rand Paul discovered this, and they had no action except for this is something a president usually gets. This is out of control, don't you think? No, absolutely. I mean, it's there's nothing to say about it besides it's just insane. Uh, it's insane, and it's it's in your face. And Joe Biden made sure of it, and I think it's despicable. Next, transgender swimmer Leah Thomas faces some backlash for her Antifa soldier shirt. Uh, no kidding. Uh, the Antifa soldier shirt uh, that she wore with first began making national headlines in 2021 due to being transgender and defeating rival college swimmers by large margins has ignited a debate about whether transgender swimmers uh, should be allowed to do it. We know that. Um, but tra- but this whole uh, Antifa shirt is out of control. Someone who went through it and got beat up by him, Andy, uh, Andy No, editor of the Post Millennial on Monday, tweeted a photo screenshot purportedly of Thomas wearing the shirt. Another reason to dislike what she represents. Hence Next, Charles Barkley. How, how logical her brain works. Charles Barkley takes aim at rednecks and a blank in an explicit Bud Light speech. Let's listen to Cut 25. I'm going to buy some drinks for y'all. And I'm about Bud Light. 
I thought it was, uh, that's how he feels. He said, I don't care what you are, uh, do it. Uh, stop boycotting Bud Light. He's always speaking his opinion. I think he had a few Bud Lights that night when he was speaking. No, he's had it totally sober. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Keep it here. The Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to BrianKilmeadeShow.com or to the podcast. In case you ever miss it, you don't want to be out of the loop ever. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.